I had yesterday an opportunity to do a funeral here at our church. And um, it was a funeral for really a man who at 18 years of age up in Painesville um, knelt before a kneeling bench and recognized his need of God and opened his heart to God and received him as Lord and Savior and then lived till just a few days ago till 99 years of age. One of the longest um, members, live members in our church body and it was so incredible to see um, he was a farmer, not the fruit of the soil, but the fruit of the soil of the lives of people from his family and in his friendships and others that were touched by his life. And, I, and as you kind of go, you're 99 years of age, there's a little bit of a gasp of, ah, oh, that's really cool. And then I thought about it and I thought, you know, Abraham was 99 when he was having his first child with uh, Sarah. That's not a big deal. <laughs> and when I thought of this message around meekness, I was thinking to myself, here's a man who God had given him a promise at one point in his life, very early probably in his life, and called him to this land. And he calls him to this land. He said, I'm going to give you a blessing. I'm going to bless you. And from you are going to become these nations and nations. And here he went through his life. He kept going through his life. And God, you give me this promise. You know, what is this promise going to mean? Maybe, you know, it's real easy to spiritualize things. and go, yeah, maybe it means this. And, and then what is, is people do, we, our natural desires, we say, God will help you work this out. You know, we do this all the time for God, right? You know, and then that messes things up a little bit more. And then eventually... When you can't do anything, God says, blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. There's this sense, he says, now, Abraham, as you have learned through time to submit your heart and your life to me, I will give you your inheritance. Because inheritances are things that are given to people who over time have developed a kind of a character before God that allows for him to give you in this life some of the things that he desires for you to have for what he's called you to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you take the words of this message. I ask that you would show up here, that we would encounter you, Holy Spirit, as we have through worship. And you would be the one who speaks and makes your word come alive and makes you, Jesus, the one who is the exalted one that we worship. And that our lives would reflect that, reveal that, and live in that. Not just in this moment, but throughout the week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what if you were able to harness your energy to perfectly meet each and every situation you faced? I was preparing this message and thinking about it. That's one of the questions that came to me. And I thought, well, I'd just lead off with that to ask you to think about what if you were able to harness your energy to perfectly meet every, each and every situation you faced? What would it look like if you controlled your temper in a moment of frustration? What if you expressed patience the next time you were irritated? And what if that patience actually became a habit and over time became a part of your character and you were actually known as a patient person? What if you let God and, and let go and let God take care of your unmet desires? You didn't try to force things to happen. You didn't cleverly manipulate matters to get your own way. You didn't medicate the pain of your loneliness or shame through measures that won't really medicate it, whether it's alcohol, pornography, another spending spree, whatever it would be. 
What if you chose mercy over judgment? What if you chose to forgive rather than to make someone pay by emotionally withdrawing or by using your anger to get them to respond? What if you chose joy in the midst of your trials rather than despair? What if you chose peace through trust rather than worry due to fear? What if you were able to harness your energy to perfectly meet each and every situation you faced? Meek people do this consistently. And it's disruptive. You come against a meek person and it disrupts your life. Meek people are disrupted all the time by the Holy Spirit and through God's word. So where do you get such strength and such courage and such fortitude, such ability to harness your energy to meet each and every situation? Now that doesn't happen just you know, immediately. That happens as you begin to live in this life that Jesus has called people to. In fact, we were reading Matthew's chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, which is known as the Beatitudes. They're blessings not on some actions that we do, but they're blessings on the actions that over time create a kind of character. And it's that kind of character that God says is the blessed person. So that's why Jesus starts this out. And Jesus was an itinerant preacher. Again, you have to remember that Jesus was going from place to place, and especially in the beginning of his ministry, I think he probably used these Beatitudes from time to time to call people who were going to follow him and say, if you're going to follow me, this is the way my kingdom looks. It's upside down. It's different. It goes against the grain. It's counterculture. And so Jesus would sign up, I think, his followers after he would give these Beatitudes. And, and they're kind of that, what I call that Christian manifesto. We've heard of the Communist Manifesto and all these different kind of manifestos. Well, here is the manifesto, which is not some verbal declaration that results in some kind of military revolution. It is a statement of truth that results in a character that disrupts the world they live in. And these words are disruptive. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. And today, blessed are those who are meek. Jesus is talking not about people who who merely pray when they're desperate, when he says blessed are the poor, but live aware of their desperate need of God all the time. I don't believe Jesus is talking here merely about people who mourn during times of crisis due to circumstances or to the, the, uh, the deep awareness of their own sin and their, their offense that has hurt others or have hurt themselves. I don't think he's just talking about people who come into that kind of awareness. He's talking about people who live in that kind of awareness of how their life could, on their own, in their own nature, cause hurt and pain and how their life when crisis might come. They live not just in the midst of crisis that cause a mourning, that causes a sense of focus, but they begin to live aware all the time that this focus is something that's more a being attitude. And so Jesus now issues a blessing to those who are meek. Not weak. And we're going to say this again throughout. It is not weakness. In fact, I've, reading things you'll find from time to time, they'll talk about those who are lowly and impoverished and, weak, and meek. And, and often, I, and just yesterday, in fact, I saw it, I think it was either on the TV or a news uh, an article that I read, where it, it, it lumped those together in the sense of those who are oppressed, the meek who are oppressed. It's not weakness. 
In fact, Jesus issues this blessing to those who are meek, and he says congratulations to any person who allows God's strength and wisdom to rule, even though they could, through their own personal strength and wisdom, make happen what they want to have happen. Okay, you see the strength there? Desperately mournful people, says Jesus, are also supernaturally, over time, naturally meek people, not weak people. So as, as Jesus probably turned to people in the Aramaic, which is very close to the Hebrew, go back to Psalm 1, and you could read it this way, Oh, the blessedness of the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So this morning, for those of you who like, again, roadmaps, here's kind of where we're heading, and the first point will be a little longer than the next two. But what, what the first thing I'm going to look at is what meekness looks like, some of the distinctives. And then I want to take a moment and just talk about what meekness is, kind of a definition, kind of a working definition maybe that you can kind of use. And then we'll talk about what meekness promises, that last part, inherit the earth. So what does meekness look like? Now, first you have to understand that meekness is what I call chosen humility. In fact, the underlying attribute, which is the basis of all these beatitudes, is humility. And we could lose it. You know, we could be looking so much at the trees that we forget to see the forest, and the forest, the thing underneath it all, the thing that's really under meekness, in fact, more so in meekness than in some others, is this idea that it's humility that's been chosen. Humility is the soil from which each of these being attitudes grow. It's the basis of each, because in it, Pride has to vanish. Poor, we speak of the person who is humble and means they're desperately dependent. He says mourn because we speak of the person who has been humbled through tears, whether it's a crisis of circumstances or a recognition of their own sinfulness. He talks about meek. And then he says the hunger and thirst, those who have unsatisfied appetites, they're humbly dependent, needing to be filled. And those who give mercy, they choose to hold back punishment deserved. And purity, it's the simplicity of a heart of a child, that humility. The peacemaker is one who takes a humble stance to help create relationships that are, that are filled with peace. The persecuted is the person who, through undeserved anger, is placed in a place of humility. And humility is at the core of each of these beatitudes, but in a unique way, meekness is chosen humility. And if you were to kind of look at humility and just dial it one step over, meekness would be right there. And so it's, meekness is not just humility, but if you go through the Word of God from time to time, you'll see that authors will translate that word in different ways. And some will say, if you go back to Numbers and it talks about Moses being the most humble, in some translations you'll see he's the most meek. And that's kind of what it means there. I think the most meek man that ever lived, it says. And then if you go over to the fruits of the Spirit, it will, it'll list these things. And it will list this idea of meekness or gentleness. It was another way to look at this word. It's humility plus. It's chosen humility. And the New Testament tells us this, that in Isaiah he says, but, but God gives us, us more than, he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, and he quotes a proverb, James does, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourself then to God. There's this idea that you choose humility, which is a form of meekness, because in that you resist the devil in the way that he wants to work through you, and you flee from him so that you can allow God to work through you. It's chosen humility. Peter does the same thing. It's a very popular proverb, I think, in their day. Peter says in first, Peter first, uh, chapter 5, verses 5 through 9, all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. And the idea is that like, you got up this morning, not only the nice clothes that you're wearing, some look a little better than others, but anyway, um, no, you all look great. 
But what you do is one of the pieces you add to yourself is humility. And you put it on. And you wear it. Because we're told this proverb, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourself. Since I choose humility, therefore, under it, catch this, God's mighty hand, so that he may, he'll lift you up, he'll exalt you, he'll put you in that place. It's not yours to grab. It's chosen humility. And cast all your anxiety in him because he cares for you. You have to recognize that he does really care about you. And it's like Pastor Paul Bergeron used to say when we would pray together over here before services, he would say, and roll your burdens on the Lord. Just roll them off. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. I hear choose humility. Don't in pride follow your natural responses, your sinful nature, your actions that you think need to be done to get what you need. Because Satan would love to use your desires to harm someone else and to hurt your own self. He's looking through to, to use your pride or your fear or your anger to cause you to react. To cause you even to use your mind to think about how to plan, to scheme, to make something happen. Pride is my way. Humility is God's way. You choose humility and meekness is a choice to humble yourself before the truth of God's word and the prompting of his spirit so that his outcome can take place. Meekness looks like holy boldness. That's another thing. As I was reading through this, this is one that kind of, it, it took me a little bit by surprise, because, you know, you go in as a pastor, as you kind of try and understand the word of God, I'm understanding this idea of meekness. This one took me a little bit by surprise. In fact, it confused me, but now I feel really good about what God has to say about this. Sometimes people called of God to do a work for God in someone else's eyes may appear to be a bit arrogant. There's a holy boldness to what they do. They have a calling of, of God on their life, and as they begin to work that out, others around them sometimes can stand out there and go, man, that, you know. And what I just want to caution you is we kind of look at this in a moment. We're going to look at this passage of Scripture. Some leaders of God are actually used greatly of God because of this fundamental sense of boldness that is there for the call of God, and God actually knows and sees the humility of their heart. You may not, and so be careful lest you stand and judge. We are a nation that loves to critique and judge. There are leaders called of God, some people who are working things out for God. There are people sometimes called even in occupations that have this ability to have kind of this boldness to do what they were called to do and pay attention to that because it's not yours to judge. I I really believe this. As, As the church, we need to understand that. If you look at Luke, uh, Numbers chapter 12, it says here, and it leaves with Miriam and Aaron, because Miriam, I think, was beginning to, this was kind of brewing a bit in her heart, began to talk about Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Now, we don't know all that was going on there. Commentators have all kinds of different understanding about that. But one thing we do know is that they both thought he was appearing a bit arrogant. That's pretty much all commentators will tell you this. And so it says, She says, and he says, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Well, we know that's not true because he spoke through Miriam and Aaron. In fact, Aaron was his mouthpiece. And they asked, hasn't he also spoken through us? Basically, Miriam and Aaron are saying, who made you boss? Moses. Right? 
And from their perspective, he looks a bit arrogant. So God sees the heart. He knows the humility of Moses. He remembers when he called Moses and he said, Moses, I know that I've crafted you. I've in the circumstances in your life. I've done all these things to use you because you're going to lead these people. Even though you tried on your own in your own strength, it wasn't the right time. I'm going to bring you back and you're going to lead these people out. And God was with Moses at this burning bush. And I don't think others were around. It was this personal experience. And Moses goes, you know, send Aaron. Not me, right? I can't do this. And God sees you at his heart and he says, yes, you can. And so what I think is interesting is, and I love this, the next line is one of those oh no moments. Because it says, has he spoken, also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. It's like, you know, you have kids and, and you overhear as a parent, or you're a kid and you, your parents overhear and, they go, and you go, oh no. You weren't supposed to hear that. And I love what the NIV does. It divides it off with a parenthetical thought. Some say it might be a later editor. It all depends on how you understand um, who wrote these five books. And it says, now Moses... I, I have a hard time seeing Moses write this, to be honest with you. So now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. The idea is meek. And at once the Lord said to, Aaron, to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out of the tent of meeting, all three of you. So here's God. Uh, three of you, uh, Moses, Aaron, and uh, Miriam, would you line up at the tent? So they line up the tent. So three of them went out. And then the Lord came down in a pillar of a cloud, and he stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned, and here they are, um, Aaron and Miriam, please step forward. I don't know if they even moved. I wonder if Moses just went like this. <laughs> oh, no. And when the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions, and I speak to them in dreams. Yes, you guys are prophets, and there's a whole bunch of other prophets who have been given by me. But he goes on, he says, I want you to understand something about Moses. He's special in this sense that I've called him to do this, and he isn't arrogant. He is bold for the purposes of God. So verse 7, but this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house, not just a prophet. With him I speak face to face, meaning he speaks intimately. Clearly and not in riddles, he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? We need great discernment. I really say that as a people because we have within our culture have a disdain for authority. We need great discernment. And then it says the anger of the Lord burned against him and he left them. And this idea is that now at this point Miriam goes in and her hand turns white and here is Moses, meek man of God, cries out to God and says, God, heal her. Even Jesus was seen as arrogant in the eyes of some. John 8, 53, the Jewish leaders can't believe what appears sheer arrogance. And are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Do you know the apostle Paul was seen as arrogant as people? You read his letters. Do you know that sometimes when God calls someone, he has to place in them, there's this holy boldness to do the purposes of God, and there's a humility that you may not see. I was talking with a friend, and he, he's a surgeon. He, I was once sharing a story about some leaders and kind of mentioning something about arrogance, and he said to me, Kevin, you know, surgeons can tend to be arrogant. I think I was even mentioning that. And He said, do you know that some of the best surgeons have a bit of arrogance and it's really needed? Because you don't really want a surgeon that goes, well, I, I think this might work. 
You don't want a leader in the, in the sense of a person who's called a God to kind of go, well, I think this is... There is something about meekness. It's not weakness. There's this incredible sense of strength and power, this boldness to do what God's called them to do, and we need to be careful. I, I think of Charles Spurgeon, this great preacher of God in the 1800s. You know that, that he would actually have to go off at times because he had such bouts of depression, and I think God used that to keep him humble. Do you know that Rick Warren, who, who, who speaks, who's, he's got like a photographic memory, this pastor of Saddleback Church, but yet at the same time, he almost was debilitated so much that he couldn't even go into ministry because of headaches and things such as that. I have a friend who's a very good speaker, and sometimes I've heard people say, well, he's a bit arrogant, and his name's John Ortberg, and you've heard him here speak at times. Do you know that the first two times he spoke, the first two times he spoke, and in the middle of his speaking, he fainted? Twice. And he, he went through this sense of, God, I can't do this. And God says, yes, you can. If God's called you to do something, you do it with all boldness. It doesn't mean that you're called to be weak. It means you're meek, which is going to be this idea that you also have a loving restraint. That's the first, third picture. There is this chosen humility. There is this holy boldness. And there is this loving restraint. And Jesus is the best picture. I could give other pictures, but in Scripture, he's the best picture of this. Jesus, if you, if you think about it, he healed the sick. He never lost an argument. He cast out a legion of demons. He fed over a thousand people, not just once, but twice. He walked on water, calmed a catastrophic storm, raised a dead girl, a dead boy, a dead man, and yet he showed loving restraint. There's no weakness in Jesus. Oh, meek and lowly Jesus. No, meek means power, this power that has this loving restraint. So if you read, if you read through the, 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 just the last day of Jesus' life, when he comes to the point where he's in the garden and he goes to the arrest, and you see each of the scenes, you see this incredible sense of this powerful Jesus, holy, bold for God holding back with restraint his activity. So you look at Luke 22, verses 49 through 51. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they're coming out of the garden, and they saw these people coming to arrest Jesus. They said, Lord, should we strike them with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear, and he healed him. Matthew adds these words, put your swords back in place. For all of you who draw the sword will, live, will die by the sword. Do you think, and here's what you've got to catch through the rest of the scene now, every scene that happens hereafter, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legion of angels? At a heartbeat, I have the power to call 12,000 plus angels to this mere little group that's come to get me. And Jesus is meek. He expresses loving restraint and calls him to do the same. Put your swords away. And then he heals the wounded guy. I, that just blows my mind because honestly, if it was me, and I think it would be for you, I think we would kind of walk away and go, yeah, that guy deserves it, right? That's meekness. And then the arrest. You're one of those Galileans, aren't you? Says so the guy by the fire to Peter, and Peter replies, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he's speaking, the rooster crowed. Now listen to this. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, eye to eye, eye to eye, looking into his eye. You know how Peter felt? It tells us how he felt. Peter remembered the word of the Lord. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Now what's your picture of Jesus? Do you see Jesus looking at him going, 
You get going like, or you see him going angry. You jerk. Give you every warning possible. But you see Jesus seeing him fall with deep compassion. Just going, you know what, Peter? I just want you to know, as I told you earlier, that when you fall away here, my grace is still sufficient. I love you. With eyes of love, I think he looks at Peter, and Peter can't handle it. We can't handle that kind of love. That's meekness. Because I think any you of us, as we know that when someone who we really love hurts us, we usually emotionally withdraw or we attack, right? We do those kind of things. That's just pretty normal. That's our natural bend. And then you have the guards who mock him and beat him. I could just go through the crucifixion. There's people standing watching and the rulers sneering at him and saying, save yourself. Soldiers who mock him and they say, you're the king, save yourself. And one of the criminals, just think about one of the criminals at his side, hurling insults at him. If you're really who you say you are, save yourself. And Jesus just in meekness doesn't call an angel down but says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. So what is meekness? The definition, I, I would, meekness is power under control. It's not weakness, it's power under control. It's, it's strength that's been tamed. It's a life that's governed by the Holy Spirit. Catch that? That's meekness. Power under control. It's this whole idea, you know, in, in the, you think of a horse, in, in, since I have a hobby farm, I, I like to use horses' illustrations because I have a little bit of understanding about them, but horses, by the old western means, the old cowboy would break the spirit. Oh, we're going to break the spirit of the horse, and the spirit would always be afraid of you. And we kind of think, that's not the way the spirit of God breaks us, so that we're really afraid of him. Yes, he's holy and great, and we better be, in one sense, reverent of this God. So I'm not saying that there isn't the reverence. But you know what's really interesting? I read a book called Empire Over the uh, Something Moon. Um, it was about the Comanche nations, the rise and fall of a, a guy named Connor Parker, who was a great chief at the end when they finally the West overtook them. And, and in it, they talk about how they, that Comanche nation got from the Spanish, the horses, and they learned how to, over about 100 years, train these horses, and they gentled these horses. They meeked these horses, so to speak. And they were so good at it, they would, at a young age, they'd take a small child, and the child would have their horse, and they would work with this horse. And they didn't break the spirit of the horse. They didn't cause this fear. There was this sense that they worked with this horse. So, so much so that when the horse and the rider would ride together, they were almost one. And they, all, they made it so difficult, the Comanches did, for them to be beaten in, in any kind of setting because of how good they were on a horse. They could actually ride a horse at full gallop and lean under the horse. You've seen kind of pictures of this. And they could take an arrow, and, a, and they could shoot with precision. Because that powerful being was under the control of that person riding the horse. There's this other idea of, of, of strength tamed. I, I, um, with my kids when we were little, we'd go down and visit my parents who were down in Naples, Florida. And there was a place called Jungle Larry's. And Jungle Larry's was basically where they had these lions who would come there. They, they, they had the best life in some ways. They'd be in Cincinnati. I think it was a zoo up there. And then when winter would come, they'd bring them down to the south. And, and they would do these tricks and these things. And these big lions would jump up on these little stools. And you'd watch them. And you'd see the trainer. And you've seen lions. You know, they're kind of like, you have all this power and strength. They could gobble you up in a moment. 
And every once in a while, they'll look like this, and they'll be looking like, do I want to do this? It's like our fleshly nature. Yeah, do I really want to follow you, God? I really want to get back at them. You know that kind of thing? And they're laughing because we all know what it's like, right? But it's this incredible strength that's been tamed. It's a life that's been governed, I said, by the Holy Spirit. You know what's really interesting? Some of you who, are, who golf, any golfers here? You, know, you ever ride golf carts? They're always, they put governors on them, right? Crazy idea, because somehow when they first started out with golf carts, they didn't have governors, and, and some guys just didn't know how to ride the golf cart because they would get it going 30, 40 miles down, hour, down this hill, and the hill and the golf cart and the guy would be, in, and anybody in it was in big trouble. So they kind of go, yeah, we better put governors on here. So, you know, if you're like me and you like speed and you start going on the hill and all of a sudden you're kind of going, this is going to be fun. All of a sudden, this thing is it's governed by this little thing in the golf cart. And that's the kind of person who's meek. Their power has become under control. They've been tamed in the sense that their spirit, this sinful nature, has been, has been um, it, it, through a process of opening your heart and life to Jesus, he plants a new nature in you, and you begin to listen to the prompting of the Spirit through the Word of God, and that begins to, as you choose humility, you begin to live your life in a way that God can bless you. And the Holy Spirit's like this governor, like the eye of the trainer, like the bit in the horse's mouth. Jesus, to his word, by the prompting of the Spirit, as we allow him to do that, create meek people. But you have to choose to cooperate. And every one of you are in situations in your life where you have that ability right now, whether it be in your marriage situation, it could be in a work situation, because we all have desires and we all think we need to get these things, and so we will use our strength to get what we want, and we will then not pay attention at times to the Word of God. We'll use all kinds of different things to get what we think we need to do. We'll use behavior that is not acceptable before the Lord or other people. We'll scheme and we'll plan and, we'll, and he says, you know what? The person who is going to be blessed, who's going to inherit the earth. You see, there's a sense that as you begin to build this character that the Spirit of God begins to build in you, you then move to the place where you inherit. You are given what your heart desires. You don't grab it, you don't take it, you don't grasp for it. But God begins to give it to you in his timing, in his way. And a lot of times, you don't get it right away because part of the process of being governed and being tamed is a process to the point where you are now this power of God, which he loves to use under the control of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So what, what I think is interesting, so I have these horses, and, and, and we don't, they're really like, more like lawn ornaments these days, you know, out in our front yard. Some people have plastic deers. We have horses. Anyway, um, plastic deers are a lot less messy. But anyway, um, we used to ride them a lot when, when our kids were younger, and, and and one of our horses, we, both, we had two horses trained, and one of the horses didn't like a bit, so we actually used a hackamore bit. And a hackamore bit is just some rope. They don't have a, a metal thing in their mouth. And you kind of ask yourself, how in the world is that thing going to work? But it's amazing to me. In fact, this horse actually is really a bit more um, sensitive than the other two horses because all I do, and it's not because anything is painful, it's just because this horse has been trained that every impulse when I will pull it, it will turn the way it's supposed to go. If you pull it back, it can actually back up. I mean, amazing. They back up. And I began to think to myself, one time I was riding this horse, and, and I had this incredible, powerful animal 
with me under the control of this little bit. I thought to myself, what if just a little bit of the Holy Spirit got into me and I, like this powerful animal, said, God, here I am with all the strength, all the things you've given me. What if I began to respond to every prompting of your spirit that, was, that came in my life? I paid attention to it and I moved with you in one like that horse. What would that be like? And Jesus says, I lived that way to show you you can do that. Not perfectly, but progressively you can grow in that character. And then I think what's really cool about that, I, I thought to myself, what if you and, and you and you and you and you and, and, and us all chose to do that at once? So we're listening to the Spirit of God and we're learning how to do it. And we actually, as a group of people, we have this great opportunity, what happened January 11th, a great opportunity for all of us to learn. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to do things wrong. But you know what? We have this great opportunity to let the Word of God and the Spirit of God to prompt us into the path of God to do incredible things. In fact, to actually have the blessing of God to inherit the earth, which means He will give us what we as a church are destined to have. And I just have to ask you, just plainly, is that what you want? It's a choice corporately, but it's a choice individually. And so, lastly, I said I'd share with you what it promises. Meekness promises blessing. Because what meekness is about is saying, God, I want you to take this nature that you've planted in me because of the birth that comes to the admission and understanding and confession of my need of you through my sin. I want you to plant this new spirit, this new nature within me. I want your spirit in me. And when that happens, you're asking heaven to come down. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth in me as it is right there in heaven. And when you do that, as you reach out for heaven, you also get earth. That's what you inherit. You say, what does that mean, you inherit earth? You know, inheritance, what we don't understand is in the past, and even today, really wise people who have been given a great amount of means, when they pass on what they've, been, they've built or they've been responsible for, they look usually for a person of character who will take all that and use it wisely. Right? God is looking for people who will take all that he's given them and use it wisely. He's looking for a church that will take all that has been given and use it wisely. And part of that comes by development of character. Because God gives to the character that's developed what he promises. So I have to share with you, some of you have been promised some things from God in your heart. It may have been 20 years ago. It may have been five days ago. God has given you promises in your heart that are meant for this time, not when you die, just like in Abraham. And you will inherit that. He will give it to you. He will exalt you and lift you up in due time as he builds your character. There's no way in many ways for a church four years, five years ago, would we be in a place to give some of the things that I think God wants to release. Because you know what? He's the kind of God who's really smart. He doesn't give to a five-year-old a sharpened knife. He doesn't go around with 12-year-olds and hand them loaded guns. Right? And so when I think about this, he says you will inherit the earth. What I want to do is just share with you a passage of Scripture, and I'm not going to have time to go through much of it, but I'm going to go through this kind of quickly. And here's a verse. If you want something very practical to apply in your life, I just encourage you to read Psalm 37. 
It is an incredible chapter. It talks about when you begin to fret and worry, when you begin envious, and those are the kind of times when you grab out or do something because someone who does wrong, or you're envious of do those who do wrong because they seem to get everything. Remember that this worth in this time is very short. Trust in the Lord, he says in verse 3, and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture, which is what really kind of surprised me because if you go through the rest of the chapter, verse 9, verse 11, verse 22, and verse 29, each of them say this. They say, you will inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. The Lord blesses, those the Lord blesses will inherit the earth. Verse 29, the righteous will inherit the earth. You're saying, well, wait a second. You said dwell in the land. What he's saying is by faith, what God has promised you, you dwell in. Abraham, you dwell in it because by faith, as you continue to do that, you will, you will, you will. And then it's really cool. You get to verse 34. And he says, wait for the Lord. Keep his way. Your job is to grow in character, to be good and obedient and loving and kind and and to use the gifts you have because at a certain point he will exalt you to what? Possess the land. He'll give you what's your inheritance. And I just want to share with you, if you want to very practically begin to live this out, this wait, keep, exalt, and possess, if you want to do what Jesus says, all the blessed of the meek, you will inherit the earth, is this truth. You begin to pray this, this psalm into your heart. And when you get to those places where you feel you need to grab, you feel you need to manipulate, you feel you want to, you say, God, I want these, these reactions. Because I have to tell you, I, I work with, I have reactive tendencies. And I say, God, help me understand them so that I begin to be controlled by your spirit, that I even sense it before I react. I've got to tell you, guys, your spouses would love it if you chose to do that. And women, your husbands would love it, and those of you who have friends would love it, and those of you at work would love it if people, right? For God chooses to do that. I'm going to ask the team to come. We're going to just let them lead us in worship. And I'm going to ask you to per- really think about the practical reality that this, this call of Jesus is to say, Spirit of God, through the truth of your word, which is your promise, through the spirit of God, which is your, through your prompting, would you lead me into the path that I might receive the promise you have said is mine.